Let me pray for us. Lord, we do thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the opportunity to hear it. And so we do ask, uh, even now, that you would be speaking once more through the book of Hebrews. We, we ask that uh, you would help us to press on, to heed the warnings and the exhortations, that you might be worshipped here in Elgin. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, worship is important. I had a pitch. I had a pitch for, I wanted to argue this, but hopefully spending time in Ecclesiastes 5, 1 through 7 has negated the necessity for that pitch. We see the seriousness with which the Bible takes worship. We're going to be considering worship uh, from the book of Hebrews particularly. I invite you to turn with me, me there to chapter 12. We'll be looking at the last two verses of chapter 12. So right near the end of the book, Hebrews chapter 12 Our verses for meditation tonight are 28 and 29. I'll read starting in verse 25. So Hebrews 12, 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. And our verses, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. In many ways, offering God worship is what the writer of Hebrews wants us to do in response to the entire book. In in many ways, these verses at the end of chapter 12 are are a summary of the entire rhetorical force, the, the entire point of writing the book. You'll remember Hebrews is, is very famously described as a book of warnings, or warnings and encouragement. I mean, broadly, structurally speaking, it goes warnings, 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 and ends with encouragement. Warnings against falling away from Christ in the midst of difficulties, and then the opposite pair, encouragements to cling to Christ. Don't fall away, but rather cling to Christ, to make it into God's rest. And Our verses, right there at the end of chapter 12, is kind of a summary of the whole book. You've got this warning, the the negative side, and you've got this exhortation, this encouragement, the positive side. And it's, it's helpful to see that our verses are the positive part of that warning encouragement pair. Right In verse 25, as we just read, you have, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. That's the warning recapitulated. Warning, don't refuse God. And in keeping with the pattern in Hebrews, he warns there that God's future judgment will be far more severe than the earlier pictures of judgment in the Old Testament. And our verses are are the positive counterpart to don't refuse him who is speaking. Don't refuse him who is speaking. Offer acceptable worship. In many ways, that that positive counterpart in Hebrews is always how you obey the warning. You you, you can't just obey the warning. You need the positive uh, counterpart. You can't just create a void. You have to fill it. You can't heed the warnings of, of not to fall away from the faith without the positive active side. Cling to Christ. Stay in the faith. And here, it's worship God. In other words, worship is at the center of remaining faithful to Jesus, enduring persecution, withstanding trials, 
refusing temptation, not falling into empty religious forms, and reaching God's promised rest. Worship is a big deal. It's the way we strengthen our weak knees and make straight paths for our feet. So it's probably a good idea to know what the writer of Hebrews means in our verse when he says worship. What what does he mean when he says offer God worship? What is the worship that he's actually talking about? So tonight we're going to do two things, two things in our time. We'll settle in on a definition for worship in verse 28, and then then we'll consider how the verses explain how we do it. How, How do we actually do this worship? So what does verse 28 mean when it says offer worship? Now, if you go look in the dictionary, there are generally two definitions that are given for the word worship. One, worship can refer to a positive feeling, a feeling of reverence, devotion, that you direct towards something. So to worship God in that sense would be to feel toward God a certain way, to feel reverence, to feel adoration to God, to honor God in your heart. But here the verse says, worship with reverence and awe. In other words, the command to worship is to the command is to worship and include reverence and awe, include certain feelings towards God. That means the worship that he's talking about is obviously not the feelings of reverence and awe in and of themselves. The writer says worship needs to be accompanied by those feelings. Now he isn't saying it's truly possible to worship God without reverence and awe, but he is making a distinction between the actions that make up worship and these feelings that need to accompany worship. There's two inseparable things, but it's two things. There's worship, and then there's fear of the Lord. Now the second definition you might find in the dictionary is worship can refer to cultic worship. Now I'm using the word cultic in in a neutral sense. Sometimes it's it's a bad word, but it's also just a technical term referring to anything that has to do with religious ritual, rite, anything that you practice together as a ritual. So the, the Christian equivalent would be Sunday morning service. Worship is, you know, our Sunday morning service. It's one of the primary associations with the word worship. It's the, one of the main things we considered, if not the main thing we considered this morning. And in fact, the word for worship under, underlying uh, the English in this text is the word that the Bible uses to describe the work the priest did in the Old Covenant, in the temple, right, during the sacrifices, during the rituals, the feasts, all the ceremonial things that the priests did. That was worship. All that we do in Sunday service is worship. But the author of Hebrews means something a little broader than just Sunday service in this text. This verse is not only about having a Sunday church service, though it certainly would include that, as we'll see, but we know that it's a broader because of how the passage continues. The author of Hebrews defines what he means by worship in a series of rapid-fire commands in chapter 13. Don't be, don't be thrown off by those headings. Chapter 13 is an extended exposition of this command in 12, 28 through 29. And in 13, we read, Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. Let us bear the reproach Jesus endured. Obey your leaders. Pray for us. And we know these commands are expositing what the author means by offering worship because in the summary statement near the end of the list, the author summarizes, do not neglect to do good and share what you have for such sacrifices are acceptable to God, pleasing to God. 
You look at that language. It summarizes the application in chapter 13 as sacrifices, as priestly worship that are pleasing or acceptable to God. All of this following our exhortation to offer pleasing, acceptable worship to God. So if you want to know what worship in 1228 is talking about, you look at chapter 13. And worship there means continuing in brotherly love, for example. But then... Does that mean, side question, does that mean worship can be reduced to matters of civil kindness, good deeds, neighborliness? Certainly not. We know this firstly because included in the list is things like do not be led away by diverse, strange teachings, bear the reproach that Jesus bore, and offer a sacrifice of praise, lips that acknowledge his name, meaning worship includes identifying with Jesus publicly taking the social shame that comes with it, and publicly praising him. But furthermore, our verses say worship must be paired with reverence and awe. Awe, fear. Fear of what? Fear of the Lord. How do we know? Because verse 29 grounds the reverence and awe in the fact that God is a consuming fire. This is not new for the author of Hebrews. Once again, he reminds of the terrible prospect of God's coming judgment. The coming destruction for all those who shrink back and deny Jesus Christ. He said just a few paragraphs earlier, if we go on sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but rather a fearful expectation of judgment, a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. And that little addition here in verse 29 of that reason, for our God is a consuming fire. It's interesting. It's interesting because it's coupled with the positive exhortation, not the warning, right? You, you, you have the warning in 25 through 27. Now we have the positive exhortation. But you'd expect, for God is a consuming fire, rhetorically, to make more sense going in the first half, going, going with the warning, right? See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, if they did not escape, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven, for our God is a consuming fire. Right? It makes sense rhetorically there. But Hebrews puts it in the positive exportation. Worship. Let brotherly love continue. Remember those in prison. Don't be led away by strange teachings, for our God is a consuming fire. By this juxtaposition, we see clearly that worship, positively conceived, must be coupled with a healthy fear of God, a healthy respect of his judgment. This means that worship in verse 28 is motivated, at least in part, by God's justice, by God's wrath. And as we saw, since worship is defined in chapter 13, that means loving your brothers, not being led away into strange teachings, submitting to your leaders. For that to be biblical worship, those actions must be done out of or conjunction with a fear of God. Notice also a theme running through the commands in chapter 13. Most of these, while not specifically done necessarily only during a worship service, still cluster in the context of the church. Brotherly love in Scripture, that's not, we, we use that word, so, that, that phrase so cavalierly, but brotherly love is a, a strong, familial love. It was the type of loyalty that was owed to your family in this culture. In fact, uh, it was strange for Christians to be called to have it for each other. It was kind of scandalous that Christians were called to view their church community as commanding not just equal but even greater loyalty than their families did. That was really weird in their culture. 
So yes, the author of Hebrews is looking wider than what, just what happens on Sunday morning, and that is rhetorically meant you, to make you consider your life outside of church relative to service to God. Not just what happens on Sunday morning. That's not just service to God. What happens outside of Sunday morning needs to be service of God. But Hebrews is also being more narrow than just saying everything. Everything is worship. Everything in life is, is worship. While it's true, it is true that eating and drinking can be done to the glory of God, that there's a, a sense in which everything should be worship. What is in view in this passage is what serves the church, what serves the body, what helps each other be built up in faith, what serves the gospel proclamation. That's the worship that Hebrews has in mind. So not just Sunday morning, but anything you do in service to God and thus in service to God's visible kingdom on earth, the church, the gospel ministry, your brothers and sisters here. So thus we arrive at our definition for worship that the author of Hebrews wants us to do, that he's exhorting us to do, to offer to God. Worship is the work you do to serve God by serving the church, motivated by fear of God, whether it happens on Sunday morning or Thursday afternoon. Now secondly, we're going to go backwards in our verse and spend the rest of our time asking the question, so how do we do it? How do we do this? How do we worship? Can we just grit down and will ourselves to do these things? Well, notice how verse 28 starts. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship. The initial positive exhortation is let us be grateful. Let us have gratitude. For what? For a kingdom that cannot be shaken. He's directly continuing that image used in the previous warning. In the previous verses, he makes it clear that by shaken, he's referring to God's judgment that will totally destroy the world as we know it. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, the things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. What is God going to shake in the final judgment? He says the earth and the heavens, right? Not, not just an earthquake, but a, a whole universe quake. But in contrast, in Christ, we receive something that cannot be shaken, that cannot be destroyed. The author is saying, cultivate a gratitude for the superiority of the kingdom that you are inheriting from Jesus. It cannot be destroyed. It will outlast even this present universe. What Jesus offers is spiritual and is supra-physical, beyond this world. Hebrews is really just continuing the comparison. It started back in verse 18. There the writer says, we have not, he's making a comparison, he's saying what we have is better. And first he says, we have not come to what may be touched. And then he describes the Sinai theophany. That's the previous thing that's not as good as what we have. He says, we have not come to what may be touched. The Sinai theophany, the appearance of God on the mountain with cloud and fire, earthquake, wind, a loud voice. But curiously, the writer calls that theophany, that appearance of God, what may be touched. He's about to show how what we, Jesus has given us in his ministry is superior, superior to Sinai, and he calls Sinai what may be touched, which is especially strange because of verse 20, he specifically cites the fact that no one was supposed to come near and touch the mountain. So why call something that you weren't allowed to touch something you can touch? His point seems to be that as great as the Sinai theophany was, as great as that manifestation of God's glory was, it was still a physical manifestation in the old creation and ultimately non-salvific. 
It was a reality that though you weren't allowed to touch, was still limited to being something of this present world. And then he contrasts that with what we have come to, something untouchable yet still presently ours. He says, present tense, we have come now to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the spirits made righteous, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. He says, look at these things that are ours now, that we have come to now, that are beyond this world, that are not limited to this world, that will outlast this world. I mean, look at just the last one. We've come to the sprinkled blood, meaning we've experienced forgiveness, not just forgiveness, the, the full atonement that Jesus' sacrifice accomplished. Having your sins atoned for is better than seeing a fiery manifestation on a mountain. I mean, one of the reasons the, the word faith, kind of name it and claim it theology, is so bankrupt is because there's literally nothing you could want for in this world that isn't already yours in Christ. I mean, a car, a healthy body, a bigger house, better job, those things are going to be shaken. The, the, the car's going to be shaken. Your current body's going to be shaken. Sorry, I lost my place, getting excited. Those things are going to be shaken. The car is going to be shaken. Your body is going to be shaken. They're not going to survive God's judgment. If you could name it and claim it, why would you use divine power to lay claim on things that are going to be destroyed? Let us be grateful for things that cannot be shaken. Let us be grateful for these spiritual realities that will outlast the present world. Atonement participation with the heavenly court, unity with God's people, the perfecting grace of Christ in your heart, enrollment in the kingdom to come, those absolutely cannot be destroyed. And look in verse 28 how he says, and thus, and thus let us offer acceptable worship to God. Let us be grateful for our unshakable kingdom and thus offer worship. That that and thus is crucial to understanding the force of what he's saying. That means that the gratitude is the means. It's the method for worship. Not Not just the motivation. Motivation can actually be a weaker word. It is certainly motivation. But motivation just means reason. You could have a reason for something. You could have motivation and still not do it. Being grateful is more than just motivation here. It's the means. Not just the reason to worship. It is the power to worship. Meaning, you ask the question, how can I worship? Through gratitude for the unshakable. Through gratitude, via gratitude, how can I have the strength to do Hebrews 13 and do it with the right heart? I must have gratitude for the spiritual heaven realities that are mine in Christ. In other words, to properly love your neighbor, to show hospitality, to not love money, to be willing to bear the reproach of Christ, you need to be grateful for what is yours in Jesus. That means you need to know and understand what is yours in Jesus. I mean, our verses are basically saying, let's be Hebrews 13, and in order to be Hebrews 13, we need to understand 18 through 24 in chapter 12. The only way we can offer acceptable worship, pleasing worship to God, the only way we can do the things God wants us to do, the only way we can positively cling to Jesus and enter his rest, is to have gratitude for what Jesus has done for us and what he's given us. That means we have to know and we have to understand. We have to know that we have an unshakable kingdom. We have to know what that means. 
and how Jesus got it for us. I mean, that's why he, the author of Hebrews said earlier, I want to move on to solid food. That's why he gave, gives this long four-chapter exposition of the priesthood of Christ, how Melchizedek relates to Aaron and what this means for your understanding of Jesus, our great high priest, and how he achieved a true atonement, how he engages in present heavenly intercession on our behalf. We need to know those things and so be empowered to worship. Being neighborly isn't worship if it isn't empowered through love of Christ's person and work. This world, this present world, and all that is in it is going to be destroyed. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, through this, let us offer worship to God, acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for what you have made ours in and through your Son. And we pray that we will lay hold of these things, these realities, that we would understand, understand them, understand what they are, and understand them to be ours, that we would so be empowered to worship you, to do all the things that you have commanded to serve you, to serve your people, and to so increase your witness here on earth. May we be a faithful, worshiping people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.